0: Hello again, everybody. Welcome in. It's the fabulous farm babe, Pam Yankee, and I'm joined in studio today by Dr. Sean Conley. He's our University Extension Soybean Specialist and on the cutting edge of what's happening with research dollars from the Wisconsin Soybean Marketing Board. Sean, thanks for taking time to join me in studio today. Let's get started by, first of all, benchmarking Wisconsin. You know, it wasn't all that long ago where growing soybeans north of Highway 10 was unheard of. Today, we've got soybeans all across the state. How do we stand as far as our soybean research compared to others?
1: Well, I don't mean to brag, but I will because I usually do. But I think if you look across the country, uh, we're very well poised here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison our relationship with the Wisconsin checkoff program. I would argue we got the best team in the country between myself, Rodrigo Worley, um, Damon Smith. We have some soils people, Matt Ruark and others and uh, Brian Luck on the ag engineering side, we're very collegial. We get a lot of work done. We you know, collaborate on all sorts of projects, and we're. I think the best part about this entire group is we're very grower focused. You know, we have to understand whatever work we do, we have to translate that back to a grower in both a short-term ROI, but then a long-term ROI as well.
0: You know, and that kind of approach spans a lot of generations and a lot of different projects that you've started kind of seen to fruition, and then start again. Let's go back when you first started working in uh, research with Extension, started networking with the Wisconsin Soybean Marketing Board. Give us a little sense on your projects then, and then we'll fast forward to today, the drones, the apps, the prescriptions, etc.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm think, kind of thinking back, Pam, when we first started out. We did you know some, I would say, agronomy 101 type of projects We are looking at you know seeding rate and row spacing you know questions that uh, had been done 30 years ago and then we just kind of wanted to redo it and just make sure with today's modern genetics and when we're moving into our earlier planting dates how this all translates and now we have higher yielding genetics and then we have interactions with these genetics with you know we're planting soybeans three weeks earlier than we did 30 years ago so I think we've seen a lot of changes um, and you know funny enough, I would say probably ten years ago I started, you know, making this wild claim. I guess you would call it a wag that um, soybean populations and corn populations would meet before I retired. I think a couple people or kind of looked at me a little skeptically. Now, you know, I think we're really pushing those uh, corn populations up into the low forty thousands, and you know, I've seen some farmers that are dropping eighty thousand soybeans out there. So another fifteen years, I think we'll, we'll I'll be right, and you know, I, I like to be right, Pam.
0: Yeah, you hope you're around that line, that's for sure. Let's talk, though, about now where we stand because uh, with the advancement in, like you said, genetics, uh, herbicide technology, and so forth, you guys are tracking right along. Now, the most recent projects that the Wisconsin Soybean Marketing Board might have seen included everything from the continuation of prescription uh, recommendations for specific fields in Wisconsin. And also, uh, your latest little caveat is that drone that you've
1: got. Yeah, so I think the thing with a drone, Pam, as you well know, we're, we're really trying to drive yield here in Wisconsin, and a lot of times that means we're planting early, we're putting either a later maturity group soybean in, and that soybean's not coming off until roughly Halloween. Well, when we're trying to get cereal rye or some other cover crop established, that really doesn't fit into our our, our scenarios. So we're looking at a way to be able to basically interseed um, cover crops, specifically cereal rye, into standing corn. Fly it on before leaf drop, about half leaf drop. And then that way it gives that, uh, excuse me, that uh, cereal rye plant about a month of extra growth time so we can get some biomass accumulated out there, remove some of that excess nitrogen. And I think we're going to see a lot of excess nitrogen out in the soil profile this year because of that drought. Capture that so we don't lose it downstream and then have that available for next year's soybean crop. And I mean, I know we don't need soybean, but soybean will capture and utilize that to kind of increase our sustainability. So there's there's niches and places we can do. And I think another cool thing about a drone, and Rodrigo was talking about this a little bit yesterday with his technology, is we can put these prescriptions out there. So let's say we have a 100 acres soybean field, just as an example, and we know how white mold only affects parts of fields. So if we know the long-term history of a field and where white mold is, we can just draw a prescription and have the drone basically fly to those spots. So instead of a farmer having to spend the money for product inputs, application on 100 acres, maybe we only need to apply it to 15 acres and really do that prescription and save farmers that money in, you know, in the short term. But also increase the long-term viability of these fungicides because we're always battling resistance. Uh, resistance management is a big thing. So I think that gives us farmers a good tool to utilize. And, you know, for that matter, again, this year we had a lot of um, spider mites, Pam, around the edges of the field in some of the droughtier areas. So instead, again, of having to call the co-op and have that 120-foot boom just whip around real quick, you can just have a drone come in, fly that edge where those spider mites are come in and again, save up farmers you know, a lot of money and a lot of time.
0: Well, and a lot of time, too. Uh, you know, we're talking with Dr. Sean Conley, University Extension Soybean Specialist, about some of the return on investment uh, Wisconsin growers are seeing from their investment of soybean checkoff dollars. And that's a perfect example where, like you said, you guys all get along, you all think the same, and three different areas of emphasis, weed control, uh, fungicide, disease control, and then uh, even things like, population can all be monitored with one piece of equipment. I know another thing that you talk about prescriptions, water hemp is Rodrigo's big deal. And that is one that keeps our head on a pivot. And again, like you said, you guys are all working together to figure out how you can set that back.
1: Yeah, it's kind of cool. We were able to look at some of these um, like prescription post-emergence herbicide application technologies, basically I'm not going to, you know, stump for a specific brand, but I'll say seed spray just for an example for farmers, that you basically drive through a field, and you have either a sensor or a camera being able to say, okay, that's a water hem, you just, psht, you just hit it with a little bit of a spray. So again, instead of spraying all of your acres, you're decreasing your herbicide input by maybe half maybe 80% just depending on how patchy those weeds are in that field. And again, it saves farmers a lot of money and a lot of time. And we're not putting that you know, that pesticide out there into the environment where it's not needed. So we're bringing very more site-specific. So I think there's some really cool applications. Obviously, we have to get the cost down. Yeah. But once we get to that point, I think there's some places that you know farmers can really invest and utilize this technology because you know as well as I do, It's kind of hard to get labor out there. So if there's different ways we can get, you know, utilize this technology uh, to decrease some of that labor demand, I think that's a great tool for for farmers and will really increase not just their economic sustainability, but their environmental sustainability as well.
0: You know, you talk about tools, and one tool that the Wisconsin Soybean Marketing Board invested in years ago, and only continues to evolve are your apps. Both you and Dr. Damon Smith have developed these kind of cutting-edge apps that routinely are downloaded big time in spring and maybe fade off a little bit depending on the growing season. But tell them a little bit more about kind of the return on investment that we're seeing there. And, And, you know, not everybody's going to be able to afford or put their arms around a drone, but man, most everybody these days is comfortable with apps.
1: Right, and the good thing about these, you know, these are all sponsored and supported by the Wisconsin Soybean Marketing Board, so they're free to download on both either an Apple or an Android platform. And, you know, I'll speak to uh, Damon's white mold apps, or Sporecaster and Sporebuster. And one is basically helps you predict when that white mold um, will basically, when you need to make that application. Because we've seen, and you know, Damon and I have talked about this, the biology of when that, pest is going to infect that soybean plant has actually changed over the last 10 years we used to have farmers you know target that r1 application time you know that first flower now we're starting to see where that infection occur is occurring is more closely aligned to that r3 growth stage so instead of first flower we're seeing it out there at first pod and i think what we've seen is a twofold well maybe threefold thing first of all farmers are planting earlier you know we're planting two to three weeks earlier than we did you know, 20 years ago, then what we're doing is we're stretching out that maturity group beans so that flowering is happening happening at different times, as well as we're cutting our seeding rate so we don't have the the canopy development as quickly, which kind of uh, really drives when that infection occurs. So I think there's some really cool things that we're you know mo- you know monitoring these, so that we have farmers place that fungicide out there at the right time. And then we can be able to update those apps every single year. So as we see things changing, uh, as we see pricing changes in some of the fungicides. So when we use, you know, the Spore Buster part, where you can do a pricing and look at, you know, put your own pricing in there for fungicides targeted towards white mold farmers, because then tweak their system. So it's it's really cool to be able to implement and use these technologies that basically are free for any farmer out there to use.
0: Free is really a phrase that you use a lot with uh, regard to your projects that you work with with the Wisconsin Soybean Marketing Board. Let's also talk about one that's kind of in the process now, and that is your ultimate goal of refining some of this information gathering to such a point that you'll be prescribing field by field, uh, basically a call to action. Give them a little background on why you decided you wanted to try that and where we stand today.
1: Yeah, I think this is the coolest thing that I've worked on. And this is kind of, you know, people always ask you what drives you. You know, I've been in this job. And this is my 16th growing season. You know, maybe farmers are tired of listening <laughs> to me. Well, you know, and I get it. I know my 17-year-old is tired of listening to me. But I think what's really exciting is we've got the technology, we've got the, the data, and we've got the tools in terms of the computing power to be able to basically pull all this information, bring it into the system, And then develop prediction, predictive tools to basically tell a farmer, all right, let's say there's 20 things that a farmer wants to change in his soybean operation. Row spacing, planting date, population, maturity group, seed treatment, whatever. So right now what we're working on is basically a toggle system that gives farmers, all right, here's the 20 things you may or may not be willing to choose or change in your production system. Which ones? And then what we do is we run a model. And that is basically you take a pin, you drop it in your field, we pull in the uh, historical weather data, we get the soils data, we have some of the information about what the yield and productivity is of those fields. And we say, all right, if you want to increase yield, maximize yield, make these four or five tweaks. Or if you want to maximize profitability, which is most what drives most farmers, make these three or four other tweaks. And then we could just try it on a farm. And then if it works, then we could feed that, you know, into the system. Cause you know, Pam, when I talk to farmers, farmers get basically forty years of experiments. So let's say you take over the farm at say twenty-five, you start running the farm. <laughs> Maybe some farmers are forty before mom and dad or dad lets you make those decisions. But you get basically forty years of an experiments. Well, if we look at utilizing this AI technology. We instead of just getting 40 years, we can run millions of simulations to be able to predict how a biological might work in this situation, how a different extended uh, maturity group soybean might work, and we can put those prescriptions out there and then let farmers tweak it. So I think that's the cool thing, the exciting thing. And again, when we first launched this Pam, we were, I want farmers to bust it, you know, because I know it's not going to be perfect. No, nothing that ever is when you first launch it out there. But I think it'll be a real cool t- tool for farmers to to try it. Well, let's try and break it and, and continue to improve the system so that we can, again, the ultimate goal of my program is to improve the long-term economic and environmental sustainability of every farm in this in this great state of ours.
0: Far cry from the old yield results that were the focal point of soybean checkoff dollars, trying to get that research information ground through on an independent basis and back out into farmers' hands. It uh, obviously has changed, and that's what we're talking about with Dr. Sean Conley, University Extension Soybean Specialist. Uh, Remember, if you want to find out more about how your checkoff dollars are being spent or get involved with the Wisconsin Soybean Association, the best way to start, wisoybean.org. Wi soybean.org. All the resources are available right now. We'll also put a plug in for Dr. Conley's uh site where he churns a lot of the information. That's coolbean.info. And what's your handle again? At badger bean. At badger bean. He likes to tweet tweet. Or are, are are you xing now
1: or are you tweeting? I st- I'm Xing, but I still say tweet tweet <laughs> all the time. So every time I do these kind of things, families, like they'll say you know it's X now. I'm like, oh, we
0: got to redo this thing. So, That's yeah. all right. Well, we're not going to redo these things because most of us still think of the tweet. Again, Dr. Sean Connolly, kind of the guy that uh, is uh, coordinating all this information about what checkoff dollars are doing here in the state of Wisconsin. I want to go back to a point that you made that this information is free for our Wisconsin farmers. This information also inspires people beyond our borders. We have to understand that uh, – Good information like this, educational information that advances the industry, isn't kept within our borders. You collaborate a lot with people outside of Wisconsin, and that's also part of the way you keep
1: your talent young and fresh. Yeah, I think Pam, that's a really good point. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm basically getting to be the old guard anymore on the soybean side of things. It's really nice to be able to you know bring in and mentor some of these newer faculty across the country. And what's really exciting is through some of the checkoff hours both our state QSSB, but our regional and national checkoff dollars, we'll be able to put this team together called Science for Success. And we and this, basically, this is my colleagues. Every state has one of me. And what we've done over the last five years, we've grown this from like four to now we're at sitting at 29. So what we can do is, here's a good example. So the Wisconsin Soybean Marketing Board is, has funded this biological project that we have. So we have it at 10 sites in Wisconsin, which is great. But, you know, I can't put it out at every environment. You can't do every kind of stressor out there. Well, we put this uniform protocol out to all these different states. So after this year, we'll have almost 150 site years of biological data. And what we can do with that, then, Pam, is, you know, pull this information and put together kind of a a worksheet or a chart that says, if you have this type of environment and it's drier weather – then this biological group or family of biologicals is most likely to give you an ROI. So it basically allows us to blow up this information, bring it all in, and then bring that out to farmers, which would be the, the most useful. So I'm really excited about the, this group and the fact that, you know, each one of these states supports their, their, uh, their saving specialists and allows us to do these collective, you know, across the country. Because like you said, Pam, we used to be pretty strict with uh, state borders, you know, I just got a, an email today from a farmer in northern Minnesota I had a question. I get questions from basically every state around me. Even sometimes from Arkansas. Those are always kind of interesting. Yeah.
0: And biologicals is kind of one of the hot topics, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's crazy. If you look at the you know, the marketplace out there, I think the most recent number that I've seen is there's 500 different biologicals out there on the marketplace for farmers to use. And within the each indi- individual Company, that's where most of these companies are investing, is a ton of dollars into research and development of biologicals, and I think that's a really growing area. and And what I always have to inform farmers about is you have to understand biologicals are not as stable as, let's say, hard chemistry. If you got a herbicide out there, you're going to expect you spray it, you're going to get ninety five percent weed control. Well, with a biological, it's interfering with – I won't say interfering, but interacting with uh, the environment. So drought stress or too much water, uh, cold temperatures, too warm temperatures, because these are living things out there, these biologicals. So they're much more um, influenced by the environment. So I think that's one of the the first points we want to get across to farmers is if you're looking at these, they're not going to work as often or nearly as dependable as hard chemistries. And if you have that, you just – I have to understand that when you start working with these, Pam. Yeah, and like you said,
0: the technology always changing. When you get a big field of opportunity like that, wow, you better stay on top of it. Again, Dr. Sean Conley, University Extension Soybean Specialist, in studio with us uh, to talk about how your checkoff dollars are returning investments to your farm, to our processors, to our state. Uh, you can find out more and follow along, as always, Soybean. You know, one area that you're alluding to, Sean, but I want to go to specifically, biologicals, uh, minimizing how many times we pass through a field with a fungicide, a herbicide. A lot of that speaks to the sustainability message out there, too, that has been an undercurrent of your research, Dr. Damon Smith's research, Rodrigo Worley's research, since you all started, but doesn't necessarily come up as a sustainable conversation, help people understand the sustainability as a part of your research conversations, no matter what you're doing, because these days, a case is to be made for sustainability in all facets.
1: Yeah, Pam. I think, you know, we we try to have these conversations about sustainability, and I think farmers have always been at the forefront of these conversations, um, you know. A farmer wants to pass his land or the, her land on to the next generation. And the, that farmer always wants to make sure what they pass on to the next generation is better than what, how they've received it. And I think we've made some changes in terms of reducing our tillage and decreasing our pesticide or inputs. There's a lot of positive things we've done that I think we, as a ag community, we need to do a better job of not just preaching to the choir, which is... You know ourselves, but having that messaging. And I think over the last five years, and you've obviously helped a lot with this, Pam, and going out and working with communities. But that's something we need to do: is just stop preaching to the choir and and communicate with, you know, you know, sit on the school board, be involved in the community, let your you know your neighbor know what you're spraying out there. Because we're seeing you know this encroachment of people buying houses or moving out in the ag you know, into the ag sector, the ag land area. So I really think it's an important part and that, that, that discussion needs to be brought to the forefront. I know farmers are always thinking about it, but it needs to be brought out to the forefront. And I think once we can start putting dollars on some of these and, you know, showing farmers or informing farmers that, yes, so I understand it's going to be – let's use no-till as a good example. You know, there's going to be a learning curve. You're probably going to take a yield hit the next few years. However, once you get in, you're going to be saving diesel fuel costs. You're going to be saving, you know, the the topsoil. We started integrating cover crops. Obviously, that's a learning experience as well. It's going to cost you some money up front. But the long-term benefits of that, of increasing organic matter, increasing soil carbon, you know, we've done a really good job with some of the research funded by the Wisconsin Soybean Marketing Board. There is a relationship between increased organic matter and increased carbon and increased soybean yield. So it's a long-term benefit to farmers to implement these, and and, and they're doing it. They're doing it. I just think we need to do a better job of talking about it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, That's why we're talking with Dr. Sean Connolly about this. So we've established some of the investments that have been made in Wisconsin soybean research and ancillary research like our fungicide research, our weed uh, resistance research. Where are we going when you sit down and collaborate, when you're not so busy running from field day to field day, when your crew and you get a chance to sit down and collaborate, what are you talking about for the future, Sean?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Pam. You know, I don't know why you always have to ask me these hard questions when I'm sitting here. You know, I, th- I think uh, I'll use cover crops as a really good example of the collaboration. So I... And sitting out there telling farmers you need to plant earlier and earlier every year, you need to plant your beans before your corn. Well, now we're dealing with some of those herbicide resistance challenges. If we, if we go out there and plant our beans, you know, in front of our corn, you put a pre-emergent herbicide out there. That herbicide is going to be gone. By gone, I mean it's dissipated. It's got a half-life that when the water hemp starts to germinate and emerge, that first pass of a pre-emergent herbicide is gone. Well, then we start battling into weed management, which was obviously a very important part in Wisconsin, given the glyphosate resistance. So this is where myself and Rodrigo have to sit down and like, all right, we want to integrate cover crops. in there. when do we terminate cover crops to have the best opportunity to, you know, have an influence on weed control and not impact soybean yield? And I think we've kind of come to this point that we need about 4,000 pounds, roughly roughly of a cover crop biomass out there before we terminate it. At that level, you, unless we, in a year like this where we have a significant drought, we shouldn't have any influence on soybean yield. We can plant green pretty easily with soybean if you set the planter up right. You get to that 4,000-pound mark, you you know terminate that cover crop. And then what that does is gives you about 75% weed control just by having that living mulch out there. Then we can layer in some of these other challenges – Serves of getting a residual herbicide and controlling that. And then obviously that has an implication for diseases. If we have a good mat of a cover crop out there, that reduces the incidence and severity of white mold. So then we maybe then save on the back end of not having to put a fungicide out there at that R2, R3 growth stage. So I think it's a system. And the more we as scientists and farmers can talk about and in integrating these different systems, I think there's a good way for us to, again, Increase the ROI and increase the sustainability of systems, which is, I think, you know, all of my colleagues are all excited about doing. Got to ask you, how much does
0: erratic weather play into your conversations when you set up projects? Because on the short term, we lived through a drought in many areas in Wisconsin 2023. That leaves a point in my brain. But you guys as researchers are charged with not just looking short, but you got to look long. So how much is the erratic weather that we've that we experience a part of that plan, that
1: conversation? I think that's if it's not at the absolute forefront, it's in the top two of our discussion because we all have to understand, you know, you know climate change is a red blue thing. I don't like to talk about climate change, but I think most individuals out there will agree that we're having more erratic, intense weather events, be it rainfall events or heat waves or whatnot. And we, as an agriculture community, have to understand that to keep that soil, you know, on our fields, we need to have cover out there for when we get a four-inch rainfall in May. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to look at residue management, keeping cover crops out there to, you know, withholding that that water. And I think this would be another good example, Pam, if we did not have as many no-till acres as we do out there this soybean crop in Wisconsin would look like a train wreck out there cuz there was roughly 2 months that some of these fields did not get a lick of rainfall so if we did not have a cover out there to help protect that soil from from you know water loss through evaporation that we would be it would be a disaster i made this point yesterday at our, at our field day If we wouldn't have got a couple of these rains and had no till, we would be talking about emergency forages and just what a train wreck it would be out there. So I think, again, that's the whole resiliency conversation that we need to be having. But uh, yeah, back to your question, Pam, that's at the forefront of our our question. So it's, it's, it's critical and we have to be able to understand how we can manage our crops in these hectic environments, I guess.
0: Yeah, whether it's weather or economics. Thanks, Sean. Dr. Sean Conley, University Extension Soybean Specialist, joining us today on the podcast, obviously right on the cutting edge of what's happening with research in the state of Wisconsin around the region involving our Wisconsin soybean checkoff dollars. I'm Farm Director Pam Yonke. Thanks for joining Pod Talk, a podcast by Wisconsin soybean farmers for Wisconsin soybean farmers. For more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit wisoybean.org or wherever you consume your podcasts.